Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's word says. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance or what woman having 10 silver coins if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it and when she has found it she calls together her friends and neighbors saying rejoice with me for i have found the coin that i had lost just so i tell you there is joy before the angels of god over one sinner who repents Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, as we have opened your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and eyes to see and comprehend the divine joy of heaven and that you would teach us to think like you and that you would make us that which you want us to become more in your likeness. We ask that your spirit would do that as your word is preached. In Jesus' name, amen. 700 years before Jesus entered the world, the prophet Isaiah foretold that the coming Messiah would bear much reproach. That as the suffering Savior, he would be the object of unimaginable scorn and shame. But one of the most wonderful ironies in scripture is that some of the most degrading insults and curses of men that were cast upon Jesus are actually some of the most precious truths of the gospel that we hold dear. Remember when they crucified Jesus, Pilate's soldiers mockingly declared, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him and put a crown of thorns on his head. So as to say... What kind of pathetic king is this? Who is like this king who gets beat and bruised with blood dripping down his face? How shameful. But that's exactly our worship of him. Who is like the Lord? The king who came down to be stricken, smitten by God and afflicted for the sins of his people. Remember also how they uh, ridiculed him as he hung on the cross. If you are really the son of God, why don't you come down from the cross? What a joke. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let him come down, and then maybe we will believe him. No, no, no. We we believe in the one who stayed on the cross. That's why we love him, because he came to save others and not himself. This is precisely the glory of the Son of God, that he gave himself for sinners Like us. And so you see all these kinds of insults hurled at Jesus. They are for us the very hymns of praise and adoration. And so it was with this 
derogatory nickname that the Pharisees and the scribes had for Jesus. In their vitriol and hatred against him, these religious leaders mustered up what was the most offensive thing they could think to call Jesus, which was this. This man is a friend of sinners. Remember those exact words were used back in chapter 7, verse 34. Look at him. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now look, tax collectors, they were the worst. They were seen as a scum of society, the lowlifes, because they were selling out their fellow countrymen, their fellow Jews, for monetary gain before the Roman Empire. And so to call Jesus their friend was to say, oh, he is so low, he is down to their level. He's just like them. And so again, here in chapter 15, verse 1, they despise Jesus. They, they grumbled against him in the same spirit. Why? Because tax collectors and all kinds of dirty, ungodly sinners were drawing near to Jesus. But, but rather than distancing himself from them, as the Pharisees would have done, because they were, quote unquote, too holy for them, And rather than refusing to be associated with them, what did Jesus do? What was their objection? Verse 2, this man receives sinners. He welcomes sinners. And he even eats with them. You know, it was one thing to tolerate the presence of sinners. It was one thing to be willing to come into contact with them while holding his nose. But this Jesus... He embraces them. How unholy of him, they thought. He is the unholiest teacher and preacher we have ever seen. And so they slandered him with the most bitter curse they could think of. He is a friend of sinners. But church, that is exactly who he is. That is the praise we sing. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. And the Pharisees, they intended all this to accuse him of unholiness, but in fact, this was divine, holy love most fully revealed, that God came in human flesh to draw near to sinners, even stooping down to their level. That was the point, that he might draw them to himself in repentance and faith. You see, what this shows us is not only God's act of grace towards sinners, but his heart of grace toward them. His sentiment, if you will, in that it was one of genuine joy and fondness for the lost. In other words, there's an enthusiasm with which he deals kindly with sinners. God actually inclines himself to sinners because that's the whole point of the gospel. Look, the Pharisees, they believed and they implicitly taught that God was just like them cold and distant and merciless towards sinners. And in his disgustedness by their uncleanness, that he he withdraws himself from them until they clean themselves up and make themselves presentable enough. Good luck with that. But friends, if that's what God is like, which he has every right to be, because our sin is disgusting, and it does disgust him, but if God withdrew himself from anyone unclean, Who then can be saved? Because all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. We are all lost and hopelessly unclean, and God knows it, and God sees it. But that is why Christ came. You see, it was for the unclean that he might cleanse them. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, that he might find them and rescue them. And so why on earth should we think that God would ever be repulsed by sinners who look to him for mercy and grace? No, he, he actually loves the lost who cry out to him. He loves, he specially loves the brokenhearted who confess their sin. If we can say it like this, God loves to love sinners. You understand that? He loves loving sinners. He takes great pleasure in forgiving them, in restoring them, in redeeming them, in bearing with them. And that's what these two parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin are primarily meant to convey. It's not just the fact or the result that they went from lost into the status of found. But the real question, the heart of the matter here is this. What is the heart of the pursuer as we see depicted here? In what manner or spirit does God trouble himself to seek and rescue sinners? Not begrudgingly, but happily. It delights him to do so. In effect, Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, Oh, you have a problem with me receiving sinners? You don't even know the half of it. I not only receive them, but I run after them. I pursue them with joy. Look at this first parable, one I'm sure that many of you are familiar with. Verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now, the premise of this parable assumes that this man is a good shepherd who takes notice when one sheep has gone missing, such that he leaves the 99 in the fold to go find the one missing and lost sheep. Now, that's commendable, to be sure. But that alone doesn't tell you everything. Because if we read only up to this verse, sure, he's a good shepherd in that he's responsible. He's dutiful. He is accountable. He, he has great attention to detail and takes responsibility to go and bring the lost sheep back. But with what attitude? You know, if we read only through verse 4, it's entirely possible that we have a shepherd here who again is responsible. He does the act of going to search for the one straying sheep, yet he could do so out of great bitterness and resentment for the trouble that the sheep has caused. Ah, oh, that one sheep, Billy, Billy the sheep, always running away, never follows me. I'm so tired of his antics. When I find Billy, I'm going to give him the whipping of the century with my rod and the staff. Now the shepherd can go and search for Billy the sheep, but do so out of this irritable heart that actually despises the wandering, weak failure of a sheep and what would reveal this underlying heart more than anything is the immediate reaction of the shepherd when he finds the lost sheep again he can do the whole act of search and rescue but the moment the sheep is found he could react with anger and belligerence ah there you are billy you know how far i've had to go to come get you 
How many times have I told you to listen to me? If you go astray one more time, I am going to cook up lamb kebabs for dinner, and guess where I'm going to get that meat? I can see why Billy left in the first place. He's running for his life. But such a reaction reveals a heart that is quick to anger and ultimately hostile to the sheep. That is a domineering shepherd, even if he is responsible to go after the lost. But how does Jesus show himself to be in this parable as we come to verse 5, which tells everything? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. He loves his sheep. Even the straying sheep, especially the straying sheep. And so he puts the sheep on his own shoulders. Do you know how heavy a full-grown sheep is? More than 100 pounds. It's heavier than those big sacks of rice at Costco. But here is a shepherd, so tenderly bearing the sheep's weight upon himself and carries it all the way back home. Who knows how far that distance would have been? I mean, it's just a parable. We don't, we're not given all these details. But I imagine it was an arduously long way. And yet after carrying the weight for so long all the way back home, he doesn't grow weary. He doesn't grow frustrated. But rather what grows is only his joy that his lost sheep has returned to him where it belongs. And when he arrives home, his heart is so overflowingly glad that he must invite others to share in that joy. It's It's not enough for himself to revel in it. And notice how lovingly he speaks of the sheep. Verse 6, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep. Mine, my beloved that was lost. This is the good shepherd who so loves his sheep that he would even lay down his life for them. You know, we marvel at the image of, uh, of the shepherd in this parable. One who has traversed a great distance to carry the sheep home on his back the weight of more than 100 pounds. But in Christ we behold the chief shepherd who traversed the infinite distance from heaven down to this fallen world to come and carry the cross upon which he bore the crushing weight of the sin and guilt of those he came to save. And if that's not enough, what does Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 say? For the joy Set before him, he endured the cross. Now listen, that doesn't mean that Jesus skipped and hopped his way to the cross. No, the wrath of God that he had to endure was so eternally dreadful that in the genuineness of his human nature, there at the garden in Gethsemane, our Lord prayed, Father, If there is any way, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there was no other way for God's justice and wrath to be satisfied. Sin must be punished. It must be paid for. And justice must be unleashed. And so he went willingly to the cross. 
to bear the sins of his people in great love for them while they were still lost in ungodliness. And how great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. And that is the joy of God, you see, to adopt sinners as his sons and to bring them home no matter what the cost. Because God is glorified when lost sinners are found and saved. In fact, the worse sinners are, the more God is glorified that he should do such a thing for the vile and the wicked. That's why Jesus loved and welcomed the tax collectors and prostitutes and all kinds of sinners. Not because he was pleased with their wickedness, but because the power of God's salvation is magnified in saving such wicked people. I mean, think about the amazing grace of God that Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, was one of Jesus' disciples. Now look again, the tax collector. Do you understand how despised he was? He sold out his fellow countrymen for monetary gain, but it was to the effect of, in the same spirit of, in the Nazi regime, a Jew selling out his fellow Jews to be sent over to the concentration camps to save his own skin and to rise up the ranks of that regime. Absolutely unethical. No morals, no conscience. Devoid of love and care for others. Selfish crooks. But it's not just that Matthew... Levi the tax collector, Jesus called him to follow him. That is amazing in and of itself. And not only that he would become one of Jesus' 12 apostles, but God gave him the privilege of writing the first gospel. This dirty tax collector would be the first to testify of Jesus to the world through writing. And that writing to be sealed and inscripturated by the Holy Spirit, to be a testimony to all generations, even to us as we read the gospel according to Matthew, which literally means the good news according to this tax collector, this swindler, this crook. How appropriate. Because the gospel is for sinners. Jesus came for the sick, not the well. What better man to tell the world of God's amazing grace than a wretch like Matthew? Are you here this morning unsaved and still lost as a sinner without Christ? What's keeping you from simply confessing your sin to God and trusting Jesus to save you and to forgive you of your sins based on all that he's already finished? By his life, death, and resurrection. Is it for some reason because you're unsure if God will receive you? Do you feel that he might be reluctant to do so and that you need to somehow better yourself first to become appealing enough for him and somehow court his favor? I want you to see here how much he loves the lost and how much he loves finding the lost in their lostness. He loves to find them while they are still lost. Salvation, you see, salvation is not a lost sheep suddenly 
making prudent decisions and figuring out how the GPS works to find his way and toddle back to the shepherd. Now, the gospel of God's salvation is the Lord himself going to the lost sheep. Him saying, I myself will rescue the sheep. Jesus is the living prophecy of Ezekiel 34, which we read at the beginning of the service. Salvation is the Lord himself going to the lost sheep who can do nothing but cry for help. Cry for deliverance. Cry in terror. Realizing that he's made a mess of his life, led himself to ruin, and needs his shepherd to come to him and carry him home and do all of the lifting. That is the gospel. And that is the cry of repentance. That's the cry of sheep-like faith. And how Christ loves to hear the cries of his sheep. He loves to carry them. He loves to mend their wounds. He loves to bear their burdens because he has tender affection for them. And if you need any further proof, look in verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now Jesus is speaking sarcastically here. There are no 99 persons who are righteous who need no repentance He's speaking sarcastically of the Pharisees who were self-righteous, who thought themselves to be righteous, who thought themselves to need no repentance. But of course, you just look at the whole rest of the Bible. Everyone is, is unrighteous and everyone needs to repent. Well, the point here is this. It is so illustrative of how much God delights in saving the lost. So much so that when a sinner repents, all of heaven erupts in cheers and jubilee. God is not repulsed by sinners. Rather, He enjoys. He enjoys pouring out His grace upon them because all of heaven and earth glorifies Him for it. Now, Christian, if I can ask you, do you sometimes feel like this joy of God is but a thing of the past? I'm sure you believe that he was happy to save you and convert you to Christ. But these days in your walk with him, do you feel like his sentiment toward you is not so joyous? And one primarily of disappointment? Perhaps even regret? Do you feel like you overextend his forbearance and patience toward you in your struggle against sin? If that's you, you need to understand that he loves being patient with you. He loves sustaining you. The heart of Christ is especially moved by the wounded among his flock, the bruised, even the ones prone to wander away. Because look, do do you think that because you've entered into his fold by faith and now belong to him, somehow he now has any less urgency to leave the 99 and tend to you when you stumble and fall? Uh, I mean, if he was such a friend of sinners to you while you were dead in sin, how much more now that you're, you're united to him by faith and he has joined you to himself? That's Paul's argument in Romans 5. Christ loves bearing with you. He loves bearing you, carrying you, because it is to his glory that he will carry you to the end. Do you understand? As Jesus said in John chapter, chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. 
well, but maybe they don't follow you so well. Are you sure? They're, they're not really good followers. But then he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. And when you make it to the end, Christian, by the grace of God alone, when you finish the race, the heavenly host will roar in festive joy and praise to God because his grace was sufficient to sustain you through every stumbling and bumbling along the way. You see, God takes great pleasure in pursuing sinners and securing them unto himself. Why? Because sinners are precious in his sight. He sees them from his eyes as their maker, their most intimate creator. Notice the second parable of the lost coin, which basically conveys the same idea of the joyful pursuit of that which was lost. But there are some added dimensions to this one. Verse 8, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And just so there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now at the forefront, we see the same principle illustrated with the special emphasis, perhaps, that God in his grace will find the lost no matter how lost they are. Just as this woman does in this parable, so God will sweep through the whole universe, seek out the sinner, no matter who they are, where they are, what they've done. And praise God for his persevering, irresistible grace. I mean, this is a testimony of all of us who are in Christ, that God found us in all sorts of different places, yet he found us still. But I want to bring your attention to the premise of this parable, that this woman had 10 silver coins of which she lost one. And these silver coins were drachmas. You might see that in a footnote uh, in your Bibles. Uh, Drachmas were Greek silver coins, uh, pretty much equal to a denarius, which you, you might know is a day's wages. Now, how much was that worth? How much was 10 of these silver coins, uh, these drachmas worth in today's valuation? Well, it's kind of hard to say. It depends on too many variables, not just uh, inflation. But that's kind of beside the point. Because what's important here is not the financial state of this woman. But what's important is the relative cost of what she had lost. She had 10 of those things. And she lost one. That's one-tenth of her net worth. For some of you, that's tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands even. This is how valuable the lost coin was to her. That she toppled over her whole house, had no qualms about doing so, to find it. Checking every crevice with a lamp. Desperate. To retrieve it. She can't just discard it. The coin was worth too much to her. And so in the same way, God seeks and saves a lost because he sees each sinner as so valuable. Such precious souls that must be found. Not in desperation as though God needed anything. But out of the most holy love for sinful man who had been created in his image. 
In fact, it's interesting that Jesus here refers to a drachma, not a denarius. You know, you, you see uh, many different parables that he tells where he refers to a denarius, which is a Roman silver coin. But here, actually, this is the only place in the entire Bible in Luke 15 where he refers to a drachma, a Greek silver coin. I wonder why. I wonder why. Well, this ancient Greek silver coin, you could Google it if you want. You could see images of it. It was often stamped with an image. You know, some of our coins, we have images of our presidents, uh, Abe Lincoln or George Washington, for a penny and a, and a quarter. I think that's right. But the, this ancient Greek silver coin was often stamped with an image of one of the Greek gods or goddesses. Zeus, Artemis, Heracles. And I wonder if Jesus intentionally used the Greek coin in this parable so as to say, God sees the lost as valuable like coins because they are stamped with his image. They are still image bearers no matter how lost they are. He remembers creating them. He remembers forming them in the womb. Church, do you realize that unrepentant sinners are still image bearers of God? They're not good image bearers. Uh, They're broken mirrors that do not properly reflect the glory of their maker. But they're still human beings set apart from the rest of creation, from the animals and the birds and the trees, just like you and me. And as such, they carry intrinsic worth and dignity. That's how God sees them. Is that how you see them? No matter how godless they might be? Do you long for the lost to repent? Do you desire for them to be found? rather than despising them for how lost they are. You know, this past week, I saw something on the news that just made my stomach turn. Uh, You might have seen this report, but in downtown Seattle, a young couple, a young family, who owned a sushi restaurant, the wife was 30-something weeks pregnant, two-year-old in the back, they were expecting a second I think it was a girl, beautiful family. And they were stopped at a stoplight and about to make a left turn when all of a sudden a complete stranger walks up to the car and fires several rounds into the front seat window. And the husband instinctively covered his wife as soon as he heard the gunshots. And he did take some bullets, but he survived. And he thought she was safe. Because he took them, but when he saw her, she was dead. And a couple hours later, the baby died too in her womb. I don't even know where to begin. I mean, that's just unspeakable evil. I I can't even imagine having to tell your two-year-old, can't see mommy anymore. But suppose... That in God's sovereign will, that man who committed this atrocity 
heard the gospel while in prison. And the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to see the heinousness of sin and the promise of mercy in Christ. Suppose this man repented, turned to Christ by faith, and God forgave him of all his sins and received him. Would you object? I'll be honest, I felt anger. I instinctively begged for wrath. But earth might object. But heaven would rejoice at his repentance. Now don't get me wrong. There is no one who hates the evil of this man more than God. There is no one whose wrath is more rightly kindled and stored up to be eternally unleashed should he continue in unrepentance. There is no one who grieves more with the surviving father and toddler and will remember every single tear that has been shed and so much more still left to be shed. But at the same time, there is no one who will be more overjoyed to hear this wicked man's broken-hearted repentance. Because what God sees in this man is a precious lost soul drowning in darkness, deserving of eternal judgment, enslaved to the evil one, and a lost little orphan who is so steeped in darkness that he doesn't know his left hand from his right hand. And if he should ever cry for God's undeserved mercy and rescue, Christ himself will run to him with glee, carry him home unto adoption, and bring him into the glory of his father's house as a son. That is a holy love which we can barely comprehend. But it is that same divine holy of holies that found us while we were still lost in darkness, church that search us out through the crevices with the lamp of his word and rescued us. And he is calling his church to be holy as he is holy, to be like him, to think like him, and to see like him. As the world grows in wickedness, And as lawlessness increases, it is very, very easy and tempting to look at this lost world with contempt and disdain and to grumble at the godless. But we must be holy as he is holy and look through his eyes, perfect in truth and justice and also pure in love. You know, one of my great burdens and laments is uh, I find that the plight of this age is that the vast majority of Christians are either compassionate but just lacking discernment, spiritually naive and tossed to and fro by every worldly ideology in the name of love and kindness, or they are very discerning And they can see through it all and are committed to biblical truth no matter what. But they're often angry at the world, seething at the culture. 
And how few and how rare are the Christians who are mature in the word, skilled in righteousness and discernment, whose hearts are also tender toward the lost world and pities them. Where are the Christians who hate evil and who see through even hidden evil and in their endeavor to battle against it, they preach the gospel to the lost with the joy of heaven swelling in them in such a winsome way that sinners see them as their friend. Christian, are are, are sinners drawn to you? Do you know how to befriend them? Jesus did, without ever compromising truth, without ever condoning sin. You know, this is such an understated aspect of godliness, to be a friend of sinners, for sinners to be drawn to you. And if they reject you, they reject you, whatever, but let it not be because of your lack of character, because of your lovelessness, because you're just so weirdly religious all the time. This is the glory of Christ, the friend of sinners. And may it be that God would raise up such Christ-like Christians in this church and conform us to his image, the image of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for coming down to us through Christ your Son to seek and save the lost. We are so thankful that you are utterly unlike the Pharisees, that you have never withdrawn yourself from sinners who look to you, but you have so loved sinners that not only did you make a way for the forgiveness of sins, that Christ would unite himself with them in holy matrimony by the power and bond of the Spirit. Oh Lord, thank you for the revelation of your love in Christ and we ask that you would help us to be more like you and so glorify you. And Father, we thank you that you've given us this precious gift of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper by which we see and do in remembrance of you. That Lord Jesus, when you first instituted it, you did so in the upper room, knowing fully well that in a matter of hours, those disciples would betray you, fall away from you, and be like scattered sheep when the shepherd was stricken. But even so, you gave this to them and even to your church throughout the generations, that we would remember your exceeding, unfailing kindness to sinners like us. Lord, if there's anyone here, any believer struggling in the weakness of faith, strengthen them and nourish all of us as we receive it by faith. We ask in your holy name, amen.